Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Render service with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat them the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their and your master is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The word of the Lord. Yes, Bruce, thank you. We appreciate so much the leadership that you give to an organization that's making a significant difference in our, in our community. If you just saw the slide, if you are aged uh, three up through uh, kindergarten, you may be dismissed. I should have mentioned earlier, um, uh, we finally have the use of our infant care room again. And so um, we've been doing some renovations that, that took a little longer than we had expected. And so if you have a little one that just needs some attention, some quiet space, uh, you can use yourself. It's uh, just right across from the nursery there where you can see and even hear the service. Um, and the best, best part is, is that, well, I, I won't say the rest. Um, get myself in trouble. Well, um, this morning we are arriving at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, the verses that, Paul, uh, that Bruce just read for us. It's, uh, it's, we continue our series of messages based on Paul's uh, letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, apart from a short break at Easter, we have had our fingers in these pages since late January. I'm not sure if you've been tracking that as, as we have, but we have uh, been essentially going through this uh, almost uh, section by section. Uh, a number of times we've come to a little mini-series on uh, a particular uh, issue that needed a little bit more explanation. And uh, we're currently in one of those mini-series based on what is known, uh, or what are known as the house codes, which started with uh, verse uh, 21 of chapter 5, which simply says, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then Pastor Ken spent two weeks looking at the relationship between husband and wife. Then last Sunday, Pastor Adam looked at the relationship between children and parents, and today we're going to look at the relationship between masters and slaves that Paul writes about. So next week, though, if you're looking ahead, uh, Pastor Ken will actually start a three-part mini-series on spiritual warfare, verses uh, 10 through um, about 19 or 20 in, uh, in chapter 6. So all of this is good and practical stuff, except that you're probably thinking about this passage that was read for us, thinking to yourself, going, slaves and masters, that, that terminology is unfamiliar to us. Uh, not unfamiliar to us, but it doesn't exist today in the way that it once did. And so you're wondering, um, what relevance do these verses practically have for me? Now, you were tracking perfectly fine with kind of the husband and wife relationship. If you're married, or maybe even as you contemplate marriage, or you simply observe the marriage of your friends, or if you have children, or you are a child, which we all are, um, you're following along with the instructions directed at children and parents. 
But really, slaves and masters, what could these verses possibly mean today, and what practically do they mean? Now, before we look at these verses, I want us to consider a little bit about where we've come from. Because there's such great value in doing an in-depth study such as we have been doing here in Paul's letter. We haven't just been picking and choosing passages that we like. Because if we had, we may have been tempted to skip difficult passage, such as the one about marriage relationship. And if you've read that passage or you were here uh, for those two messages, um, you may agree that those are, are some challenging words in our, in our cultural context. Um, but we don't have that luxury if we're kind of going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, all of us on staff, in fact, we're extremely grateful that, uh, that those two messages fell to Pastor Ken, um, because none of us uh, really wanted to touch those. However, even as we come to chapter 6 this morning, we have to be mindful that there have been five chapters of content before these verses. And we've said many times throughout the series that the first three chapters of, uh, of Ephesians provide a theological foundation, addressing such crucial matters of who we are in Christ— Right? We sang about this this morning. We are children of God when we are in Christ. About what God has done for us, the spiritual blessings that we have received, how a person is made alive in Christ, and how God ultimately calls us out and together, and how the church is formed as a result. And then in chapter 4, we move from the theological foundation to some very practical matters, and asking the question then ultimately, how then shall we live? And while we try to have each message stand on its own, it's important from time to time to remind us of the context. Now, I promise I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I just say that as a disclaimer because I want to take you back to the opening verse of chapter 1. And you might immediately think, oh boy, here we go. If we're starting from the beginning, how long is this going to go? But uh, we'll try to move through this quickly. I simply want to touch down on some important foundational points. And first, I want us to remind ourselves who these verses are written to. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says this, This letter is from Paul, he identifies himself as the author, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Then he says this very clearly, I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is writing to the believers in Jesus Christ who are gathered at this church in Ephesus, disciples of Jesus, faithful followers. And how is it that these people became known as God's holy people? Well, in chapter 2, Paul reminded this group of believers who they once were. And it wasn't pretty. Verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, you followed the ways of this world and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts we were by nature deserving of wrath. Did you follow that? It's quite a list, isn't it? Dead, disobedient, following the desires of the flesh, deserving of wrath. It's pretty ugly stuff. Until you come to verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. 
But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. And then in verse 5, God made us alive. Verse 6, he raised us up. And verses 8 and 10 are so good, I just want to read them all to you. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You hear that? God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this as much as we'd like to, right? It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And then in chapter 3, Paul explained that just as God called us out from the way that we were, he called us together, and the church was formed as a result. The church is the called out ones. In chapter 4, we discovered then what life within the church should look like, and then what that way of life for these new um, believers would be like. In chapter 5, then, we came to understand that it was critical for a believer to be filled with the Spirit, to be continually filled. It is the Holy Spirit's enabling grace that guides us and helps us to live the lives and live in the way that we should. And when that happens, there's, a, there's this unexpressible or even unexplainable deep joy that ultimately then finds expression in our worship and then our lives are marked by a spirit of thanksgiving to God. Can I just stop and ask us to do a quick heart check? Can we say of ourselves, or would others say of us, now there is a person who obviously walks with Jesus, is filled with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that he or she expresses a deep joy and always seems to be thankful. Can we say that of us? Would others say that of us? It's challenging to think about, isn't it? Convicting, perhaps. But it's absolutely essential for us to grasp this. You see that God saw the mess that we were in. We sang about this again this morning, about what Jesus has done for us, because Jesus ultimately came to pay the price for our sins, a price that he did not owe, and that we then are saved by grace through faith. And then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to then help us walk in this new way of life. You see, without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, how could we ever then submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? You see, that's why we have such a tough issue with that. Because it, 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 it fights, it, it, it almost, it, it pushes against our natural inclination. It pushes against our fleshly desires. As soon as we say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we're going to say, who are you to tell me that? It's in the Bible. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that, my friends, as we have come to understand, is the key to understanding marriage and family and work. Because yes, the verses that we look at today can be applied to our work context. Now, before I make this sort of quantum leap from the first century, um, in, in, from words that were written to, to slaves and to masters, to employees and employers in the 21st century, I want to take a few minutes just to unpack and explain this a little more. 
Because I know that you're smart and you're tracking with us so far. You've got husbands and wives, yes. Parents, children, yes. But masters and slaves, we still have a, a difficult... Uh, um, it's still difficult for us to wrap our minds around that. And our minds immediately think about slavery in the 19th century. And we look at these verses and we want to know, why didn't Paul just absolutely abolish the institution of slavery? I mean, by writing to slaves and masters, isn't he just condoning a cruel and unjust practice? But it's important for us to know this morning that the ancient slavery that Paul uh, is writing about here and who he's writing to is not at all like modern slavery. The Apostle Paul is writing and instructing here about these house codes, as I've already said. So he's not moving away from a discussion of these family relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children. Because in the first century context, slaves in most cases were actual members of a household. They were more like, like domestic servants. And from other passages, it's clear that Paul does not at all support the institution of slavery. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21 through 23. He asks this question. He says, are you a slave? Well, don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved by the world or don't become slaves of people. And so in those verses, Paul clearly states that a slave can gain his freedom. In fact, it's to be preferred. And those who are already free should not submit themselves to slavery. So we could say this about slavery in the first century. It was tolerable, but not ideal. And again, slavery in the first century was not the same kind of institution that it was in the 19th century. In the first century, it was more of a socioeconomic uh, class. They were the workforce, as it were. It wasn't a racial class of imprisoned people cruelly forced into labor. Now, that's not to say that in the first century, slavery wasn't full of inequalities and injustices that needed to be addressed. That's why Paul writes what he writes to to the masters, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. But in many homes, these slaves, they enjoyed considerable freedoms, rights, and responsibilities. They may have even served as tutors and nannies and cooks and gardeners. They were educated. They may have been doctors and teachers, administrators. There's an estimate that in the Roman Empire in that first century that there were 60 million who would have been considered slaves. Probably 35-40% of the population. Now if Paul were to set out and just outright abolish this institution, the whole economic structure of the time would have been, it would just been completely crippled. And the Christians would have been to blame. And so when we read about slaves and masters here, we we should see this as very unlike the brutal race-based slavery of the 19th century or the sexual slavery of women and children in the 21st century. Because that is outright horrific. It's reprehensible. And just as God used an evangelical Christian named William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in the 19th century, 
we ought to pray that God would use Christian organizations like International Justice Mission to rescue thousands, to protect millions, and to prove that justice for the poor is possible. So when Paul writes and he addresses slaves and masters, we have to remember the context and to whom he is writing. And that's why I went back to the beginning of the letter already, to remind ourselves that he's writing, he said, to God's holy people in Ephesus, who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And so just think about it for a moment. Those holy people that he's writing to would have included both slaves and masters. That's why he addresses both of them. They were members of the same congregation. In fact, it is quite possible that a slave may have been an elder in the church and in a sense has spiritual authority over his master. They may have been sitting beside each other as this letter was written to to them. And so when we seek to understand and apply these verses in our context today, we need to realize, we come to realize, that they are best applied to those in employee and employer relationships. Now obviously there are major differences between ancient slavery and modern employment, but the the practical principles, or as I've called them today, labor laws, they govern both, that govern both institutions um, are similar. And once more, I want to remind us of this principle of mutual submission because that's where it all starts. Verse 21, chapter 5, it's primary. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the question we ask ourselves is how does that look in the context of a relationship between an employee and an employer, between a worker and a boss? What are the laws that should govern these relationships? So first, let's look at the law for employees. The law, or the command to workers, is straightforward. Obey. Obey or serve. Serve doesn't have maybe the same impact as obey does or obedience. Because this is what Paul writes in verse 5. Slaves, you know who he's talking about now, obey your earthly masters. Now it's interesting to know that Paul makes sure to state that this is a flesh and blood master, right? It's an earthly master and we should obey him or her. That is what, uh, that is sort of the what of the law, right? We need to obey. This is the guiding principle. We're going to come to the how in a moment, but this is the what. We need to start here. What every employee always needs to understand is that their first and greatest priority is to obey their employer, Right? That's the key element of, of a godly worth ethic. Simple obedience. In the jobs that you do or that we do, you likely have a job description. And so your responsibility, my responsibility, is to do it. This is what it says we should do. That's what I ought to do. Or you have a list. So you do the list. It's really quite simple. right? You have been hired to do a job, so you do it. And we simply carry out the instructions of our bosses. Now, how you do this is what's really important. And Paul spends most of his time explaining how we should obey. Because we can do all our jobs, we can obey, but you know full well that we can all do it with a bad 
and wrong and stinking attitude, right? So number one, we ought to obey respectfully, respectfully. With deep respect and fear, the text says. Now, respect we probably understand, right? We show proper courtesies and kindnesses. Uh, But the fear part might throw us off a little. I mean, some translations, in fact, say, with fear and trembling. And some of you are probably thinking, if you knew my boss, you'd be afraid too. But Paul is not talking here about, you know, cowering in fear, shaking in our boots. Although some bosses might instill that in us. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's about having a proper respect and humility towards your boss. A respect and a humility towards your boss. With respect, uh, and so you respect your, your boss for their position. Maybe even if you can't respect them for their lifestyle or the way that they live or even their leadership style. But because you respect them, you don't go behind their back. You don't gossip about them. You don't gather around the water cooler and, 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 and bemoan how difficult of a, of a taskmaster this person is. No, because you respect them. You respect them. And we respect them because, he says, because of Jesus. How we would obey Christ. We respect Christ. And so we respect our boss. Secondly, not only do we respectfully obey, we sincerely obey. So Paul goes on to say that we should serve them sincerely. And this suggests that the employee should always give their best, right? Straightforward, right? You, you obey them because you're supposed to do that. You respect them. You, you are sincere in your work. You give your best instead of going through the motions, right? All of us can, you, you, you can see the sincerity of a person in their body language. Isn't that true? Right? If you've ever been at a restaurant and you're being served by a waiter or a waitress, you know full well whether or not they love their job or they don't. You, you know full well whether or not their heart is really in it. Right? You can tell the difference. And this means actually pouring ourselves into this honest service. Now, if it seems a little much that we like pour ourselves into this, um, Paul adds this qualifier. He says, well, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. As you would serve Christ. You see, if in whatever you're doing, whatever you do for a living on a day-to-day basis, If your perspective is that you are serving Christ when you're doing it, it won't be difficult to give your absolute best. And as followers of Jesus, he ultimately is our Lord and our master or our heavenly master. And it's very different than our earthly master. But we ultimately worship and serve him alone. And so when we give 100% to our earthly masters, we are in fact actually serving the Lord. Does that make sense? When we give our best at our jobs, we're doing it onto the glory of God. Because that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so we work hard. And we do our work with honor, humility, and honesty. And we treat our employers with respect. So respectfully, sincerely, thirdly, 
conscientiously. You notice how carefully I said that? Because if I said that fast, you probably wouldn't even understand it. Conscientiously. In verse 6, Paul says, Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Isn't that great? Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. I mean, you've heard the old saying, right? When the cat's away... Want to finish it for me? Come on, let's be interactive here. I've asked you a few questions, and you weren't quite sure whether you should answer or not. But when the cat's away, obviously, right? Yeah, don't do that. That's what Paul's saying. Okay? Paul is referring here to what we might call eye service. It is serving simply with the view to impress others or putting on appearances. We're doing things just for show. You see, Paul here is unequivocally excluding any of that kind of behavior that would allow us to slack off when the boss is away and then work really hard when the boss is around. Oh, here he comes. Oh, here she comes. Better get with it. Better get to it. You might even work with someone like that. Right? So annoying. Just don't be that person. Again, Paul gives the motivation for working and obeying and serving conscientiously when he writes, you see, try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. He says, as slaves of Christ, again, puts it in context as to who we're actually serving. He says, do the will of God with all your heart. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. You see, we serve Christ. We do His will. And we do it with our whole heart. So even when the boss is away, we must never forget that our Heavenly Master is always with us. Right? He sees and He knows. And so our service, our work, should be obedient. That obedience should look respectfully and sincerely and conscientiously And fourthly, it should be enthusiastically done. And this carries on the idea of verse 6, serving wholeheartedly. Now Paul writes in verse 7, if you're following along in your text, it says, work with enthusiasm. Work with enthusiasm. Or some translations say, serve wholeheartedly. In other words, not reluctant or begrudgingly. You could even say, your obedient service should be done pleasantly. Because we all know what it means to be unpleasant in our work, right? So let's not do that. And as if we needed another reminder, Paul again adds this perspective. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Again, it simply comes down to this. When we're doing our work, we can be so, it can be so helpful when we see God as our boss. Whatever we do, we're doing it for Him. And if we're doing it for Him, we can put our whole heart and soul into it. In writing to the Colossians, Paul has a very similar instructions. And there in verse uh, chapter 3 and verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. 
Whatever you do, working at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. We would do well to regularly remind ourselves of this verse. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Now just a quick word about verse 8 where he writes, Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. You see, as an employee, we get a paycheck for the work we do. That is our reward. But as you probably know all too well, it's often gone before we even get it. You might think then that you deserve uh, more pay, and you may be absolutely right. But we should always keep in mind what Paul is saying here. He is promising that God, he says, will reward each of us eternally for our faithful and respectful, sincere, conscientious, and enthusiastic service, even when our employers may not. And we may even feel totally unappreciated for the things we do. Right? All those little things that you do around the workplace that go unnoticed, that maybe aren't even on your job description, you just do them because... Well, they need to be done. All those little things, just know that whatever you do, it does not go unnoticed by God. But I think that there's another reward here for those who can serve and obey in this way. Right? When we can approach our work respectfully, our, our sincerely, conscientiously, and enthusiastically, the reward, I think, is joy. Because maybe you don't like your job. Maybe you feel like you're just stuck in a, in a dead-end place. There's no hope for promotion. You just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's boring and mundane. But if you put it in this context, that if you consider that you serve this way, you are in fact serving Christ himself. And when we do that, it just changes our perspective. And my sense is then that we can experience joy in whatever we do, as simple as the, as the task may be, that we can experience joy. Okay? So for all of you who are, who are employees, and tomorrow you show up to work, if our attitude can be one that my, my main responsibility is to get the job done, that's what I've been hired to do, and when it comes to the job and to my boss, I'm going to be respectful, I'm going to be sincere, I'm going to be conscientious, and I'm even going to be enthusiastic about it. So now the law for employers, those of you who are bosses, this is now applicable to you. Because the law for employers or bosses is also very clear. Now it's just one verse here, verse 9, but Paul has a lot packed into it. So let me just read it again, and then we'll just uh, dissect it a little bit. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So the first thing you need to remember as an employer is that you treat your employees the same way. Right? It's the golden rule of management. He says there, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In other words, you want respect? Show respect. You want sincerity? Be sincere. You want conscientiousness? Be the same. You want enthusiasm? Be enthusiastic yourself. And so bosses, 
Treat your employees in the way that you expect them to serve you and your company. And it should go without saying, but Paul says it anyway, don't threaten them. Don't threaten them. So treat them in the same way, right? Respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously, enthusiastically. But don't threaten them. Right? In, in modern terms, he's saying this. Don't be a bully. Don't be a bully boss. Treat those under your authority with kindness. Don't misuse your position of authority by making threats of punishment. Use your influence and authority not to control and manipulate them, but in fact to nurture, guide, and empower your employees. You treat your employees that way, right? This is that mutual submission way. You you submit to them by showing them kindness and respect and not threatening them, not bullying them. You show them respect, they show you respect, right? Employees, you want to be treated that way? It just, it's reciprocal. Be mindful of that. But lastly, we also need to remember that in Christ, you are equal. In Christ, you are equal. Paul says in the last half of verse 9, remember You both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Right? This goes to what I was saying earlier, that there were slaves and masters in this church in Ephesus. That's why Paul wrote this letter to them, to address people in both groups, both categories. They were sitting beside each other. He steps back, and he wraps it up with this verse. He says, remember... You both have the same master in heaven, and he has no, fa- no, mas- no favorites. In other words, both slave and master, small m, have the same master, capital M. The Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is the Lord of both the employee and the employer. And he makes absolutely no distinction. He has no favorites. So Paul is saying that an employer must view himself and those in his employment as equal before God. Of course, there is a distinction between those in leadership and those under authority of that leadership. That is part of any organizational structure in any kind of business or organization. Otherwise, you would just have total chaos. But what he's talking about here is an attitude of the heart in, which, in, the, in the way that we relate to other people. And so Paul here is talking really about a radical spiritual equality of both slave and master. And how this will play out in practical terms if you're an employer is that you are careful to pay fair wages and benefits. You care about things like their their health. You're concerned about their marriages, their children, their education, their future. You, You care for them as if they're one of your own. Now let me just summarize all of this by simply saying this. It should be clear to us as we've studied through Ephesians that if we are in Christ, then we are different. We're different. And, and, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't deny this. There's, there, this difference is radical and it's redemptive. The difference is back in, in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul began by saying, listen, this is what you once were. You, you followed the ways of the world. You were disobedient. But God, who is rich in mercy and in love, changed all of that. And he changes us. And he sends his Holy Spirit to do this transforming work. 
And now because we're Christians, we're different. Our marriages should look differently. Our families will be different. And how we even approach our work, whether as a worker or as a boss, will be different. Friends, we're called to be different, right? To live differently, to work differently. And the way that we treat one another in our homes, in our communities, and at work is just as important. You could even argue more important for the promotion of the gospel as a few hours that you might spend each work at, at each week at church. Right? He just calls us to be different. It's this way of life. This is why we're studying Ephesians, because it talks about this is who you are now in Christ. Now live it out. This is the way of life for you. I close with this story. Dr. Harold John Okenja, pastor of Park Street Church and founding president of both Fuller and Gordon-Conwell Seminaries, he told about how before the war, when he was preaching in Poland, he was invited to visit Prince Carol, Carol Radzivel on his 1,300-acre estate. And suddenly the prince pointed to an impressive young man standing nearby. And the prince said, you see that young man? He is the best worker on my estate. It was due to him that I invited you here today. And he went on to say this, that he was favorably disposed to a religion that, so, that could so affect a man's life. Did you catch that? He was favorably disposed to a religion that could so affect a man's life. Friends, let us live lives in Christ in such a way that others might be favorably disposed to Christianity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the practical instructions of your word. We thank you just for, even in these few moments this morning, to be reminded of who we are in Christ and how that then affects every part of our lives. The relationships in our marriages, in our homes, and even our workplaces. I pray, Father, that if we are employees, that we might approach our work in such a way that those around us, especially those over us, would look and say, man, what is with that person? They have such joy even in the most routine tasks that I ever give them. And Lord, if we are in those positions of oversight leadership, I pray that we would treat those under our authority with that kind of um, mutual respect in such a way that brings honor and glory to your name. And so, Lord, we know that without your enabling um, Holy Spirit within us, we can't just decide to be better people, better employees, because we heard a talk about this today. But that we would know that it is your Holy Spirit that changes us from the inside out. 
So continue to do the work that we cannot do on our own. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.